Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Adventures in Journalism, written by Philip Gibbs. This story looks at the life of a journalist living in the early 1900s in England. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to listener The Artisan Solutions for mentioning me in your story on Instagram. Thank you also to iTunes listener Hogwarts Life 5.0 for letting me know that you like history as a topic. A fantastic way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in your podcast app or share the podcast with a friend. These are fantastic ways for me to help others and are the greatest compliments I can receive. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the ratings. Adventures in Journalism Chapter 1 The adventure of journalism, which has been mine, as editor, reporter, and war correspondent, is never a life of easy toil, and seldom one of rich rewards. I would not recommend it to youth as a primrose path, nor to anyone who wishes to play for safety in possession of an assured income, regular hours, and happy home life. It is of uncertain tenure, because no man may hold on to his job if he weakens under the nervous strain, or quarrels on a point of honour with the proprietor who pays him or with the editor who sets his task. Even the most successful journalist, if he is on the writing side of a newspaper, can rarely bank on past achievements, however long and brilliant, but must forever jerk his brain and keep his curiosity untired. As nobody... According to the proverb, has ever seen a dead donkey, so nobody has ever seen a retired reporter living on the proceeds of his past toil. Like businessmen in other adventures of life, he must go on writing and recording, getting news until the pen drops from his hand or the little bell tinkles for the last time on his typewriter, and his head falls over an unfinished sentence. Well, 
I hope that will happen to me, but some people look forward to an easier old age. I have known the humiliation of journalism, its insecurity, its never-ending tax upon the mind and heart, its squalor, its fever, its soul-destroying machinery for those who are not proof against its cruelties. Hundreds of times, as a young reporter, I was stretched to the last pull of nervous energy on some story which was wiped out for more important news. Often I went without food and sleep, suffered in health of body and mind, girded myself to audacities from which, as a timid soul, I shrank in order to get a scoop, which failed. The young reporter has to steel his heart to these disappointments. He must not agonise too much if, after a day and night of intense and nervous effort, he finds no line of his work in the paper, or sees his choicest prose hacked and mangled by impatient sub-editors, or his truth-telling twisted into falsity. He is the slave of the machine. Home life is not for him, as for other men. He may have taken unto himself a wife, poor girl, but though she serves his little dinner all piping hot, he has to leave the love feast for the bleak streets. If the voice of the news editor calls down the telephone. So, at least, it was my young days as a reporter on London newspapers, and many a time in those days I cursed the fate which had taken me to Fleet Street as a slave of the press. Several times I escaped, taking my courage in both hands, and it needed courage, remembering a wife and a babe. I broke with the spell of journalism and retired into quieter fields of literary life. But always I went back. The lure of the adventure was too strong. The thrill of chasing the new story, the interest of getting into the middle of life. Sometimes behind the scenes of history, the excitement of recording sensational acts in the melodrama of reality. The meetings with heroes, rogues and oddities. The front seats at the peep show of life. The comedy the change, the camaraderie, the rivalry, the test of one's own quality of character and vision drew me back to Fleet Street as a strong magnet. It was, after all, a great game. It is still one of the best games in the world for any young man with quick eyes, a sense of humour, some touch of quality in his use of words, and curiosity in his soul 
for the truth and pageant of our human drama, provided he keeps his soul unsullied from the dirt. Looking back on my career as a journalist, I know that I would not change for any other. Fleet Street, which I called in a novel, the street of adventure is still my home, and to its pavement my feet turn again from whatever part of the world I return. When I first entered the street twenty years ago, alas, the social status of press men was much lower than at present. When the pendulum has swung the other way, so the newspaper proprietors wear coronets. The purists of Fleet Street are infested with barons and baronets, and even reporters have been knighted by the king. In my early days, a journalist did not often get nearer to a cabinet minister than the whole porter of his office. It was partly his own fault, or at least the fault of those who paid him miserably, because the old-time reporter before Northcliffe, who was then Harmsworth, revised his salary and his status, was often an ill-dressed fellow, conscious of his own social inferiority, cringing in his manner to the great, and content to slink round to the back doors of life, rather than boldly assault the front door knocker. Having a good conceit of myself and a sensitive pride, I received many hard knocks and humiliations which, no doubt, were good for my soul. I resented the insolence of society women whom I was sent to interview. Even now I remember with humiliation a certain duchess who demanded that, in return for a ticket to her theatrical entertainment, I should submit my copy to her before sending it to the paper. Weekly I agreed, for my annoyance was extreme when an insolent footman demanded my article and carried it on a silver solver at some distance from his liveried body, lest he should be contaminated by so vile a thing to her grace and her fair daughters in an adjoining room. I heard them reading it and their mocking laughter I raged at the haughty arrogance of young government officials who treated me as one of those damned fellows in the press. I laughed bitterly and savagely at a certain mayor of Bournemouth who revealed in one simple sentence, which he thought was kind, the attitude of public opinion toward the press which it despised and feared. You know, he told me, in a moment of candour, I always treat journalists as though they were gentlemen. For some time I disliked all mayors because of that confession, 
and a year or two later, when conditions were changing, I was able to take a joyous revenge from one of them, who was the mayor of Limerick. He did not even treat journalists as though they were gentlemen. He treated them as though they were ruffians who ought to be thrust into the outer darkness. King Edward was making a royal progress through Ireland. It was before the days of Sinn Féin, and with a number of other correspondents, some of whom are now famous men, it was my duty to await and describe his arrival at Limerick and report his speech in answer to the address. Seeing us standing in a group, the mayor demanded to know why we dared to stand on the platform where the king was about to arrive. When strict orders had been given that none but the mayor and corporation and the guard of honour were permitted on that space. Get outside of the station, shouted the mayor of Limerick, or I'll put my police onto you. Explanations were useless. Protests did not move the mayor. To avoid an unpleasant scene, we retired outside of the station indignantly. But I was resolved to get on that platform and to defeat the mayor at all costs. I noticed the appearance of an officer in cocked hat, plumes and full uniform, whom I knew to be General Paul Carew, commanding the troops in Ireland and in charge of the royal journey. I accosted him boldly, told him the painful situation of the correspondents who were there to describe the king's tour and record his speeches. He was courteous and kind. Indeed, he did a wonderful and fearful thing. The mayor and corporation were already standing on a red carpet, enclosed by brass railings, immediately opposite the halting place of the king's train. The general gave the mayor a tremendous dressing down, which made him grow first purple and then pale, and ordered him with his red-gowned satellites to clear out of that space, to the far end of the platform. General Paul Carew then led the newspaper men to the red carpet enclosed by brass railings. It was to us that King Edward read out his reply to the address, which was handed to him while the mayor and corporation glowered sulkily. Unduly elated by his victory, perhaps one of my colleagues who had been a skipper on seagoing tramps before, adopting the more hazardous profession of the press, resented a few days later being cooped up in the press box at Punchestown races which King Edward was to attend in semi-state. Nothing would content his soul but a place on the royal stand. 
I accompanied him to see the fun, but regretted my termity when, without challenge, we stood surrounded by princes and peers of Ireland. At the top of the gangway up which the king was to come, I think they put down my friend, the skipper, as the king's private detective. He wore a blue reefer coat and a bowler hat with a curly brim, and by good luck I was in a tall hat and morning suit, like the rest of the company. Presently the king came, in a little pageant of state carriages without riders in scarlet and gold, and then, with his gentlemen, he ascended the gangway, shaking hands with all who were assembled on the stairs. The skipper, who was a great patriot, and loved King Edward as a regular fellow, betrayed himself by the warmth of his greeting, grasping the king's hand in a sailorsman's grip. He shook it long and ardently, and expressed the hope that his majesty was quite well. King Edward was startled by this unconventional welcome, and a few moments later, after some whispered words, one of his equerries touched the skipper on the shoulder and requested him politely to seek some other place. I basely abandoned my colleague and betrayed no kind of acquaintance with him, but held to the advantage of my tall hat and spent an interesting morning listening to King Edward's conversation with the Irish gentry. Prince Arthur of Connaught was there. I remember that King Edward clapped him on the back and chafed him because he had not yet found a wife. It's time you got married, young fellow, said his illustrious uncle. That memory brings me to the importance of clothes in the career of a journalist. It was Lord Northcliffe, then Alfred Harmsworth, who gave me good advice on the subject at the outset of my journalistic experience. Always dress well, he said and never spoil the picture by being in the wrong costume. I like the appearance of my young men to be a credit to the profession. It is very important. That advice, excellent in its way, was sometimes difficult to follow, owing to rush and scurry of a reporter's life. It is difficult to be correctly attired for a funeral in the morning and for a wedding in the afternoon, at least so far as the colour of one's tie. A colleague of mine who specialised in dramatic criticism was suddenly ordered to write a bright article about a garden party at Buckingham Palace. Unfortunately, he had come down to the office that morning in a blue serge suit and straw hat, which is not the costume worn on such occasions. One of the king's gentlemen, more concerned, I am sure, than the king, at this breach of etiquette, 
requested him to conceal himself behind a tree. The absence of evening dress clothes owing to a hurried journey has often been a cause of embarrassment to myself and others, with the risk of losing important news for lack of this library. So it was when I was invited to attend a banquet given to Dr. Cook in Copenhagen when he made his claim of having discovered the North Pole. For reasons which I shall tell later in these memories, it was of great importance to me to be present at that dinner where Dr. Cook was expected to tell the story of his amazing journey but I had travelled across Europe with a razor and a toothbrush and had no evening clothes. For a shilling translated into Danish money, I borrowed the dress suit of an obliging young waiter. He was a taller man than I, and the sleeves of his coat fell almost to my wrists, and the trousers bagged horribly below his knees. His waistcoat was also rather grease-stained by the accidents inevitable to his honourable avocation. In this attire, I proceeded self-consciously to the Tivoli Palace where the banquet was held. I had to ascend a tall flight of marble steps, and being late, I was alone and conspicuous feeling like hop o' my thumb in the giant's clothes, I pulled myself together, hitched up my waiter's trousers, and advanced up the marble stairs. Suddenly, I was aware of a fantastic happening. I found myself, as the fairy tales say, receiving a salute from a guard of honour, Swords flashed from their scabbards, and my fevered vision was conscious of a double line of figures, dressed in the scarlet coats and buckskin breeches of the English lifeguards. This, I said to myself, is what comes to a man who hires a waiter's clothes. I have undoubtedly gone crazy, there are no English lifeguards in Copenhagen, but there is certainly a missing button at the back of my trousers. It was the chorus of the Tivoli Music Hall which was providing the guard of honour, and they were tall and lovely ladies. I was caught napping again not very long ago when the King of the Belgians granted my request for a special interview. An official of the British Embassy, who conveyed that acceptance to me, also advised me that I must wear a frock coat and top hat when I visited the palace, for that appointment which, he said, was at four o'clock. I had come to Brussels without a frock coat, and indeed I had not worn that detestable garment for years, and without a top hat. I decided to buy or hire them in Brussels. 
It was Saturday morning, and I spent several hours searching for ready-made frock coats. Ultimately, I hired one, which had certainly been made for a Belgian burgomaster, of considerable circumference, and I am a lean man and little. I also acquired a top hat, which was of a style favoured by London cabbies 40 years ago, low in the crown and broad and curly in the brim. I carried these parcels back, hoping that by holding my hat in the presence of majesty and altering the buttons on the frock coat, I might maintain a dignified appearance. I did not make a public appearance in that costume, however, as I missed the hour for the interview, owing to a mistake of the British Embassy. As a young man, before serious things like wars and revolutions, plagues and famines entered into my sphere of work. I spent most of my days on the Daily Mail, the Daily Chronicle, and other newspapers chasing the stunt story, which was then a new thing in English journalism, having crossed the water from the United States and excited the imagination of such pioneers as Harmsworth and Pearson. The old dullness and dignity of the English press had been rudely challenged by this new outlook on life and by the novel interpretation of the word news by men like Harmsworth himself. Formerly, news was limited in the imagination of English editors to verbatim reports of political speeches, the daily record of police courts, and the hard facts of contemporary history recorded in humdrum style. Harmsworth changed all that. News to him meant anything which had a touch of human interest for the great mass of folk. Any happening or idea which affected the life, clothes, customs, food, health and amusements of middle-class England. Under his direction, the Daily Mail, closely imitated by many others, regarded life as a variety show. No turn must be long or dull, whether it dealt with tragedy or comedy, high politics or other kinds of crime. It was admitted, not because of its importance to the nation or the world, but because it made a good story for the breakfast table. In pursuit of that ideal, not very high, but not a bad school for those in search of human knowledge, I became one of that band of colleagues and rivals who were sent here, there, and everywhere on the latest story. It led us into queer places, often on foolish and futile missions, it brought us in touch with very strange people, both high and low 
in the social world. It was my privilege to meet kings and princes, murderers and thieves, politicians and publicans, saints and sinners, along the roads of life in many countries. As far as kings are concerned, I cannot boast that familiarity once claimed by Oscar Browning who, when he showed the ex-Kaiser over Cambridge, asserted to the undergraduates who questioned him afterward that he is one of the nicest emperors I've ever met. With the rogues and vagabonds, I confess I have had a more extensive acquaintance. The amusement of the game of finding a story was the unexpectedness of the situation in which one sometimes found oneself and the personal experience, which did not appear in print. As a trivial instance, I remember how I went to inquire into a ghost story and it became surprisingly the ghost. Down in the west of England, there was, and still is, a great house so horribly haunted that the family to which it has belonged for centuries abandoned its ancient splendour and lived nearby in a modern villa. Interest was aroused when a young chemist claimed that he had actually taken a photograph of one of the ghosts during a night he had spent alone in the old house. I obtained a copy of this photograph, which was certainly a good fake, and I was asked to spend a night in the house myself with an Irish photographer who might have equal luck with some other spirit. Together we travelled down to the haunted house, which we found to be an old Elizabethan mansion surrounded by trees and next to a graveyard. It was dark when we arrived, with the attention of making a burglarous entry. And before ten minutes had passed, the Irish photographer was saying his prayers, and I had a cold chill down my spine at the sighting of the wind through the trees, the hooting of an owl, and the little squeaks of the bats that flitted under the eaves. With false courage, we endeavoured to make our way into the house. Every window was shuttered, every door bolted, and we could find no way of entry into a building that rambled away with many odd nooks and corners. At last I found a door which seemed to yield. Stand back, I said to the Irish photographer. I took a run and hurled my shoulder against the door. It gave, and I was precipitated into a room not as I found afterward, part of the Elizabethan mansion, but a neighbouring farmhouse where the farmer and his family were seated at an evening meal. Their shrieks and yells were piercing, and they believed that the ghosts next door were invading them. I and the photographer fled without further explanation. 
On another day, I went down into the country to interview a dear old clergyman who had reached his hundredth year and had been at school with the famous Dr. Arnold of Rugby. The old gentleman was stone deaf and for some time could not make out the object of my visit. At last it seemed to dawn on him. Ah yes, he said, you are the gentleman who is coming to sing at our concert tonight. How very kind of you to come all the way from London. Vainly I endeavoured to explain that I had come to interview him for a London paper. Presently he took me by the arm and he led me into his drawing room where a charming old lady was sitting by the fire knitting. My dear, said the centenarian parson, this gentleman has come all the way from London to sing at our concert tonight. I explained to her gently that it was not so, but she was also deaf and could only hear her husband when she used her ear trumpet. How very kind of you to come all this way, she said graciously. Presently, another old man appeared on the scene, and I was presented to him as the young gentleman who had come down from London to sing at the concert. Pardon me, I said, it's all a mistake. I'm a newspaper reporter. But the second old gentleman ignored my explanation. He had only caught the word concert. Delighted to meet you, he said. We are all looking forward to your singing tonight. I slunk out of the house later and drove back 15 miles to the station. On the way, I passed an old horse cab conveying a man in the opposite direction. I felt certain that he actually was the young gentleman who was going to sing at the concert that night. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I hope you are feeling drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.